said I've been interested for a while in uh, labor <coughs> immigration policy comparative analysis of labor immigration policies around the world. And uh, I'll be talking today about a book that's coming out in August, finally, called Price of Rights Regulating International Labor Migration. And I was wondering, when I was thinking about this talk, whether I should just give an aspect or a chapter of the book. But I think I'll instead try to convey uh, the general message. So, so there are quite a few slides. I'll go quite quickly. But maybe I should just start by, by the big picture, um, what I'm roughly trying to do with this research. Um, I mean, that basically, there's people who say, especially development organizations, low-income countries, who uh, advocate very strongly for more international labor migration, especially at the lower scale. So the World Bank is very much in favor of high-income countries opening up their labor migration policy to admitting more migrant workers. Now, at the same time, a different group of people um, uh, migrant rights advocates, many UN organizations, are spending a lot of time uh, advocating better protection for uh, migrant workers and more rights for migrant workers. So in a way, there's, you know, more migration can be a good thing because it's benefits for low-income countries and migrants. And more rights, obviously, can also be a good thing. What I'm trying to convey in this book is that there can be a tension between these two good things. So I'm showing in the book why you can't always have both. So I analyzed labor immigration policies in over 50 countries and showed it as a trade-off between openness to admitting migrants and granting migrant rights after admission. So the implication of that trade-off is that insisting on equality of rights can come at a price of more restrictive immigration policies. So in a way, that's kind of a positive analysis, a part of the positive analysis of the book. Of course, the normatively one can think about this trade-off in different ways. There's a chapter on the ethics in the book and uh, I do make an argument that at the end in the book for uh, the liberalization of international labor migration, especially at low scale uh, uh, and through temporary migration programs that restrict a few specific rights that create costs for receiving countries. And uh, if granted, or if they have to be granted, there are obstacles to more open admission policies. So it's an attempt to basically uh, bring together People, you know, people saying there should be more migration, development experts, people concerned with protection of migrants, and to have them talk about this tension and this trade-off, um, I think it has been discussed very uh, little. So, as you know, a lot of my, uh, most of my work, in a way, is motivated, motivated by very specific uh, policy questions, policy issues. So, this particular project really started with this chart, which shows you the. Uh, ratifications by nation states of the major international human rights treaties over time. And uh, the main uh, message I want to convey is basically that of all the major international human rights treaties, the 1990 Convention on the Rights of Migrant Workers is by far the least uh, ratified. So, you know, after almost, you know, after 23 years, Fewer than 50 countries have ratified the convention, as we heard throughout the course of the seminar series. Um, the Convention on the Rights of the Child, which just a year before, been ratified by almost everybody, almost all countries, 200 countries. Uh, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, 2006, already many more ratifications. Now, what's interesting about that is that um, um, 
the rights that are in the Magdeburg Convention, of course, don't significantly go beyond the rights that are already in the other human rights treaties. Okay. So some people would argue that the reason the Magdeburg Convention exists is really just to reaffirm the fact that these rights also apply to migrants, not you know, not only to to citizens. Well, I mean, one way of interpreting this chart is that uh, nation states clearly don't think that way, because there many countries are very happy to ratify general human rights treaties, but when it comes to ratifying an instrument that says basically that these human rights also apply to migrants, they don't ratify. And of course, we also have heard that many of the countries that have ratified are major <coughs> sending countries rather than receiving countries. No major receiving country has ratified the treaty. And um, if you look at the human rights records of the countries that have ratified, they're actually distinctively mixed. And as many of you will know, there's a literature about the impact of ratification of international human rights treaties on actual human rights practice. And part of the literature shows that for weak democracies, the impact is negative. Um, so countries that have ratified international human rights have actually worse outcomes. So I'm just saying, I'm not suggesting that's necessarily the case for the International Migrant Workers Convention. I'm just saying that if you look at the kinds of countries that have ratified um, in terms of their human rights practices, in terms of their migration profiles, I think a lot of these countries, you could argue, have ratified not because they want to protect the rights of migrants in their own countries, but because they want to campaign, campaign for better rights of their migrants abroad. Um, so the way, the way uh, a lot of um, uh, people have reacted to this chart is to say, well, you know, we need to find out what, what's causing this low rate of ratification. And there's a big literature, again, as we've heard over the past six weeks, on why so few countries have ratified. And there's a whole raft of reasons given, starting from legal complexities, overlaps, uh, the economic climate isn't right, uh, Nobody, no country wants to ratify its own in the EU. No EU country wants to ratify, be the first to ratify, and all of that. The starting point of this project is really well. You know, one major reason why countries don't ratify is because they don't consider it to be in their national interests to do so. I mean, it's quite a basic point, but uh, there's been very little research about how rights impact on national interests. So, human rights approaches to migration talk about rights as human rights that have intrinsic value. This research says, over and above intrinsic value of human rights, rights also play a very important instrumental role in shaping the effects of migration for migrants, for receiving countries, and for sending countries. So whether or not migrants have the right to free choice employment makes a big difference to the wages migrants earn. Whether or not they have access to the welfare state makes a big impact, has a big impact on the physical effects of migration, and so on. So basically, I think there's a real need to study the instrumental role of rights in shaping the effects of international migration, and then to ask, well, how and why do high-income countries restrict rights? Well, you'll have to look at the effects of rights for receiving countries, migrants, and sending countries. I mean, again, it sounds like a very basic point, but there's almost no analysis of how, of, of, of the consequences of granting or denying rights for different groups in the migration process. So one implication of that approach, and if you look at rights as instruments, rather than just in terms of intrinsic value, the second implication is that migrant rights cannot really be studied in isolation of admission policy. Because rights are something that are, are variable, that are in part at least set by receiving countries, migrant rights. So what I'm doing in this project is look at rights as a part of immigration policy. 
So when countries design labor immigration policy, they have to decide on three main issues. How open am I? Are we to admitting migrant workers? What types do we select by skill, for example, high skill, low skill? And what rights will be granted? So I think there's a strong case of studying openness selection rights together. So what the book tries to do is try to understand why rights are granted or denied as part of this overall immigration policy and to study some of the relationships between these dimensions. And uh, so what I'm trying to do is to basically have more analysis of what is, or kind of, you know, what explains these decisions that countries take in practice, which is, of course, a very different question from what should be. And I think the work has sometimes been um, misinterpreted, misunderstood as, as, as saying that I necessarily make uh, kind of a strong normative argument. I mean, I do make a normative argument in the book, but whatever your normative position is, I think there's a very strong case for studying rights as instruments of nation states, instruments of immigration policy, in order to better understand why uh, we see this big gap between rights in the conventions and rights in practice. So what I want to do today is um, first talk a little bit about theory in terms of, um, I mean, if we accept that countries regulate, high-income countries have to decide on openness election rights in the labor immigration policy. What can we expect? How, become, how can we expect uh, these relationships to work out in practice? Uh, so that's the first part of the talk. I'm going to do some empirical analysis then to see, in practice, um, what do we know about labor immigration policies and how rights relate to admission policies. And I was just end with uh, doing a little bit of ethics and policy implications. Um, so just in terms of scope, I'm concerned with international labor migration, so that's migration for the purpose of employment. I'm concerned with labor immigration policy, which I define quite narrowly as policy uh, that is aimed at admitting migrants for employment. Now, of course, there's a broad group of migrant workers, which, you, which includes people who enter as students, as dependents, and who end up in the labor market. I'm only concerned in terms of admission policies with those who are uh, admitted for the purpose of work. And um, when I talk about migrant receiving and migrant sending countries, of course, most countries are, are both, uh, but you can still distinguish between major receivers and major senders. Uh, I'm focusing on legal labor migration. And uh, as I'll explain a bit later, when I talk about rights, especially in empirical analysis, I talk about rights on paper, basically. So rights, legal rights, rights in law and regulations rather than rights in practice. So, first question obviously is when you talk about immigration policy, what kind of theoretical framework do you have for understanding the process of policy making? You know, how is immigration policy made? What are the key mechanics? And uh, what I do is basically take a, a functional approach where I um, argue that states have certain objectives and are operating under certain constraints. So what, what are the objectives of immigration policy? Well, I suggest there's four types. Um, typically, when, you do labor, when countries have, you know, design labor immigration policy, they're concerned about economic efficiency, which could include you know, making migration benefit growth, making migration maximize fiscal benefits, however you define it. But there's typically a distributional concern, which is um, making sure immigration doesn't harm, for example, the lowest income earners in the economy. There's debates about national identity and social cohesion, terms which are very contested and difficult to define. Nevertheless, they're very prominent in public debates. 
And of course, as debates about uh, national security and, and, and public order, again, uh, defined slightly differently in different places. But I basically argue that these four types of impacts are present in most countries' debates on immigration policies. And when countries regulate labor immigration, they, most countries think about these things. Now, the importance given to these, of course, different types of varies across countries and over time. So during economic growth, uh, distributional concerns might be, be given much less uh, importance than during economic crisis. So that's variation, but my point is not to say specifically what weights they're given at a particular point in time, but that they exist and these are objectives that countries um, have, have in mind. Now, countries aren't free to kind of choose openness, selection rights, pursuit objectives without some constraints that all countries face when they regulate labor immigration. But the first obvious constraint is the state capacity to control immigration. I mean, hugely simplifying, there's huge literatures around each of these. But you know, no country is in complete control uh, of its border, neither the border nor uh, the employment of migrants in terms of regulating their working hours. So state capacity to control immigration obviously varies across countries, and it's dependent on geographical characteristics, strength of bureaucracy, <coughs> many different things in the literature. Uh, there's a liberal constraint, uh, or, or legal constraints, that are typically summarized under the heading of the liberal constraint. So there's um, international commitments that countries have made, for example, by signing up to international rights treaties, which might limit what you can do in terms of rights restrictions. And of course, there's the domestic courts and um, uh, judiciary, which, which limits and frequently strikes down government policies. So in this country, of course, the government often proposes policies, implements policies, which are then uh, struck down by the courts as, as being not in compliance with, with existing laws. The third type of constraint is really more of an institutional variation. Now, different countries obviously have political systems, different production regimes, flexible labor markets, coordinated labor markets, and different types of welfare states. Now, all these things, all these different, different institutions impact on how the pursuit of particular policy objectives actually translates into actual policy. So if you are in Sweden and you, if you operate under a social democratic welfare state where there's very strong emphasis on inclusion and equality, you're in a different kind of policy space compared to, say, Britain or, or, or the US. Whether you are a liberal democracy or a country like uh, Kuwait or Singapore, has an impact, again, on how, what room for maneuver you have when you make immigration policy. And again, these objectives and constraints are time specific and variable across countries. So basically, the kind of uh, broad framework I have in mind is one of choice and the constraint. So when countries carry out their immigration policy, they decide on open selection rights based on objectives which are variable and constraints which are variable, but binding in the short term. In the way the variations and constraints in the, the, the variations in the constraints define and circumscribe the policy space countries have. So there's different national policy spaces, spaces for making immigration policy, which are circumscribed and determined by the type of welfare state, by the type of labor market, by the type of legal system. Of course, these constraints can change over time. Immigration might undermine, collective bargaining might undermine the welfare state, and these things might change, which might make uh, immigration policy. So, uh, so this is one model. This is 
as I said, a kind of functionalist model. It does assume a significant degree of agency of the state. So there is an assumption that nation states are able to make rational policy choices, where that means they are able to set national objectives and then to pursue policies that uh, try to meet these objectives. Now, of course, there's, as you know, there's literature that kind of denies that kind of approach and, and says, well, you know, immigration policy is really made by interest groups. So, you know, Gary Freeman's famous model, uh, Modes of Immigration Controls. I mean, Freeman argues that the outcomes of immigration policy, the policy outputs, have really nothing to do with national policy objectives. They're just the outcomes of uh, the interests of employers clashing with those of trade unions. And because employers are better organized and the benefits of migration are concentrated, employers tend to win. So that's why you know, Freeman talks about client politics. So in Freeman's model, the state has no role at all in, in advancing any sort of national policy objective. Now, I think that model might have some validity uh, in some cases. Clearly, interest groups are very important. But uh, to say that the state is just a referee and an arbiter that really doesn't set any policy objectives, I think, is, is, is mistaken and evidently not true, as we see, especially during economic crisis, when the government does try to reduce immigration in, in many countries. Anyway, that's the rough framework. As an aside, if you, if you kind of don't agree with this approach, uh, if you, for example, take an institutional approach, an interest-based approach, international comparative analysis is very difficult, of course, because what I'm interested here is also trying to advance hypotheses and try to do international comparative analysis. If you take an extreme institutional approach, which basically says policies made differently in different countries based on institutional structures, uh, you, you know, there's very few you can do in terms of predictions, in terms of theorizing across countries, because you have to look in that at each, at each country. So the hypothesis that I would then just have before I go into pure analysis relates to uh, questions of openness election rights in high-income countries. So basically, I said as recent, if you look at, the, at what we know about the effects of immigration on the economy, on society, if just if you look at the literature of the effects of migration, and if you assume there's a rational policymaker who kind of looks at the effects, thinks about these effects, and, 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 and then implements policy, what, what can we expect? What can we expect policy to look like? Well, I argue that you can expect high-income countries to be more open to skilled than low-skilled immigration. You can expect uh, high-income countries to grant workers who end up in skilled jobs more rights than uh, workers in low-skilled jobs. And you can expect a negative relationship between openness and rights that create costs. Now, very briefly, again, this is a whole chapter, but very briefly, why can we expect countries to be more open to skilled? Well, uh, there's, there's a few economic reasons. Uh, what, you know, when you talk about the impact of immigration within economics, some of the static, comparative static analysis suggests that skilled migrants generate greater complementarities with the existing skills and capital uh, of residents in high-income countries. So there's more more benefits from skilled than low-skilled. Of course, distributional concerns. If you're worried about distributional concerns, worried about income distribution in high-income countries, you will be worried about low-skilled immigration because it lowers the wages of low-income earners, which increases inequality, whereas skilled immigration would reduce inequality, right? Because it, it drives down wages at the top rather than the bottom. Another reason for being more open. People think there's externalities, there's you know, benefits, dynamic effects from immigration, uh, now, all these dynamic effects, the positive effects, are all from skilled migration. Okay, that's kind of endogenous growth, which suggests skilled 
to poor high-income countries to accumulate human capital, so it's all, it's all very much a focus on skill. Uh, you could even look at kind of literature uh, on crime and social capital, uh, but just, you know, especially on crime, if you're concerned about crime, I mean, the literature finds what's the impact of immigration on crime, well, there's very few studies that find an immigrant effect, but there's very many studies that find effects of low-wage labor markets, low skills, low education. So again, if you're worried about these things, you would kind of emphasize skill, lower, low skill. I'm not saying there's no case for low skill migration. I'm just saying we can expect greater openness to skills. Now, why would I expect some rights to be possibly related to skills? Uh, well, there's kind of two separate arguments. One, in terms of highly skilled migrant workers, there's a global race to the top. So there's a relative scarcity of highly skilled migrant workers. Most countries agree it's a good thing to have highly skilled migrants. To, in order to attract them, you have to basically offer them a very attractive package of rights. Um, so there's a competition. Countries outdo each other, and we can see that happening uh, in practice. In terms of attracting migrants, there's relative scarcity. Of course, there's an almost unlimited supply of low and medium skilled workers who want access to lower income countries. That means to, to high income countries. That means high income countries can admit more migrants while simultaneously lowering wages and lowering rights. There's always going to be an access demand. Um, so the basic point is that costs, rights create costs. Some rights create costs. These costs can be financial costs, they can be different kind of costs and benefits. That these benefits and costs vary across different types of rights. They vary in short between the short run and the long run. And crucially to my argument, they vary across they can vary across skill level. So I mean the best example obviously relates to uh, social rights or um, uh, welfare rights. Low skill, you know, in a progressive taxation system, the net fiscal impact of low skilled citizens can often be negative. That means, you know, on average, they take you know, more out from the state than they pay in, whereas the, uh, the contribution of higher skilled migrants is often positive. So, if you're worried about kind of costs, I think um, you will see a distinction in terms of rights between high and low skilled migrants or migrant high and low skilled jobs. And the third, third hypothesis follows, then if some rights create net costs, for example, if, if um, access to equal access to social housing or um, equal access to the labor market, free employment, is perceived to create net costs, the extent to which countries are open to immigration critically depends on the extent to which they can restrict these rights. Okay, so if you believe the story that some rights create costs, then I think it follows that openness to admitting migrants depends on the ability to restrict some of these rights. So, so I argue that these are kind of defensible hypotheses that one can come up with if you believe in a rational policy-making process and in, um, if you look at the literature on the economic effect of immigration. So the next step is then, well, that's all fine. Maybe you don't believe that you think this approach is mistaken. Let's just see what's happening in practice. Okay, what do we know about how high-income countries regulate open and selection rights? Now, the problem with doing this, of course, is that there's no ready-made measure of openness to immigration and rights. So, uh, uh, in the book project, I had to come up with my own indices. So, what, what the book does in the, in the empirical analysis, in the first bit, is measure um, the openness of labor immigration programs in high-income countries. And separately, to measure the rights that migrants are granted under these programs in high-income countries. 
Now, my unit of analysis is not the openness of whole countries to admitting migrants. It's the openness to specific labor migration programs. The reason is that most countries operate more than one labor migration policy for admitting different skill levels of migrants. Okay? So I've created two measures. One that measures the openness to admitting migrants, and the second one measures the extent to which they grant um, equality of rights with citizens. So the, the, critically, I distinguish between programs for low, medium, and high-skilled migrant workers because I'm interested in how openness and rights are related to skills. Now, obviously, there's huge methodological challenges. The strategy, I guess, is to be transparent and let allow people decide how robust the whole thing is. So I've looked at 46 countries with a population of greater than 2 million people, covers all, most, almost all OECD countries plus the other countries you see on the list. I've thrown in a few upper middle income economies and some lower middle income to get a better geographical spread. Again, I focus on migrant workers legally admitted for primary purpose employment. So that's how I define labor immigration policy. I'm not looking at students. I'm not looking at asylum seekers, dependents. Even though all these groups might end up in the labor market, I'm interested in what, what drives the admission of migrant workers. That's why I'm looking at uh, Within the EU, I'm excluding free movement migrants since there's no control. And I think the dynamics that influence the decision to grant free movement are quite different, I think, from the dynamics of labor immigration policy. Now, critically, I, when I classify my labor immigration programs, I classify them by the skill level that they target. Okay? So some immigration programs target low-skilled migrant workers or migrant workers to be employed in low-skilled occupations. So I do the whole skill spectrum, uh, which I define as it's described here. Of course, this is very subjective in practice. It's difficult to measure. Uh, judgment calls are involved. But the reason I'm using this formulation, targeted by, is that, of course, in practice, there's often a mismatch between the skills of migrants and the work they do. So a lot of low-skilled labor immigration programs actually attract high-skilled migrants who, who, who do low-skilled jobs. So that's why I say, you know, what, what, what kind of workers are you, are you targeting? Uh, the empirical analysis was done in 2009. I'm going to show results of 2009. So I've looked at the 104 labor immigration programs in 46 countries mostly high-income countries. Now, i just explained some of this abbreviation. I've classified all my programs by the skill level they target. So only LS means they target only low-skilled workers. LS, low-skilled, medium-skilled, high-skilled ones, first-degree, high-skilled two, and only high-skilled two workers. Okay? So this tells you the number of programs that target workers by specific skill levels. In total, 104 programs. So I've got 15 programs that are only specifically designed to attract highly skilled workers only. I've got 60 programs, highly skilled one, 46 low skilled. Okay? In this difference. So I think it's important to remember, unit of analysis and labor immigration programs, not whole countries. So I had to come up with indicators. How do you measure openness? How do you measure rights? Well, there are a few existing indicators of migration policies. Um, many of them are, I think, struggling with what they're trying to measure. Um, so I've tried to keep it as, as simple as possible, just measuring openness. So that just means to what extent are there obstacles for uh, labor immigration programs. Some existing measures focus on competitiveness of immigration policies. Well, it's very difficult to decide you know, what, what's a competitive immigration policy. I focus on openness, and I look at policies on paper again. So that means policies in regulations. Now, to what extent these regulations are then implemented is a different question, a very important question, but it's a different question. 
And I have three types of indicators, quotas, demand restrictions, and supply restrictions, and the data sources were national laws and regulations in different countries. So I had, I had 11 indicators, I had a questionnaire, I had a team of five research assistants, spent six months looking at 46 countries and scoring these across two years for all those countries. Okay. So how do we measure openness? Well, these are the kind of policy tools I've looked at. Is there a quota? Yes, no. If it exists, how, how large is it by the population? What type of quota is it? The demand restrictions, which are restrictions on employers. So these are requirements that employers need to meet in order to get access to migrants. Does it have to be a job offer? Is it a labor market test? How strong it is? Is it limited? Is immigration limited to specific sectors? Do employers have to pay a fee? Are conditions of employment regulated? Are trade unions involved? And there are supply restrictions. So these are restrictions on the characteristics of migrants, as you have in many points-based systems. So is immigration restricted by nationality, age, gender, uh, skills, uh, language skills, and self-sufficiency? Okay. So I have I have developed uh, metrics for measuring these things. The score, these eleven components, or twelve indicators, are together make up the overall immigration policy index. Generally, all my metrics run from zero to to one, zero means closed, restricted, one means very open. So you can compare countries on that. In terms of migrant rights, what I do, I look at 23 different rights, um, and uh, civil and political rights, economic rights. I use the Migrant Workers Convention as a benchmark, just to see, okay, what's the benchmark in terms of you know, what, what, what rights do we take account of? And I then, again, score all of these for all my programs. So to see, under each of these programs, to what extent do migrant workers have the right to stand for elections? Do they have the right to free choice employment? Do they have equal access to unemployment benefits, housing, and so on? Okay, again, these are legal rights, rights in law and regulations. They're not rights in practice. Keeping in mind, of course, that rights in practice can, can be more limited or more expansive than rights in law. Okay. Now, in many countries, uh, there will be rights in law that in practice are denied, but it, it might also go the other way around, So, especially with regard to um, access to social rights. So laws, the government might want to restrict migrants' access to, the health, to equal health care, but when the migrant shows up at the hospital, actually they are treated. So it can go either way. I think it's important to keep in mind that I'm looking at rights on paper, and it tells you something only part of the story, but anyway, that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. Um, so I said I had a team of research assistants, mainly from the Faculty of Law. So we spent six months um, measuring this. Uh, now, I would say it's probably the best, um, it's the best kind of um, policy index of, of openness and, and rights, migrant rights specifically, that, that's out there. That's not particularly difficult because there are not very many. Uh, but I think that there's going to be, there's, there's bound to be some measurement error. I mean, these things are very hard to get right. So I'm not claiming that we've got it right for every single country for every single indicator, but I'm claiming that it's robust enough to tell us something about the relationships between these different openness selection and rights and the different uh, programs for different skills. But we, we initially started out with 55 countries, so I excluded 10 countries with low quality of data when I actually looked at it and I said this wasn't um, strong enough. And, uh, Obviously, there are some language issues. We managed to cover the, the research assistants spoke the languages of most of the countries, but I think there were four or five exceptions where we had to rely on English translation. So then you normalize and aggregate. Uh, we can have a discussion about that. But basically, to make up the overall index, I, put e I include equal weights. 
uh, on each of the indicators. Again, you can have a debate about that. I disaggregated my work quite a bit. So, um, okay, here's some results. So I'm just going to focus now, uh, last 15 minutes, on some key features of immigration policies, uh, both in terms of admission and rights, and looking specifically at the three hypotheses and then talk about some implications. So I'll go through some, some quite quickly because not all of them are directly relevant to the three hypotheses. Well, the first, first point I make is that this just shows you to what extent the immigration programs permanent or temporary. So if you move to the right, you get, um, these are programs that are low skill, you increase the skill level. So, I mean, as expected, permanent programs in purple here are really limited to higher skill immigration. Now what's striking about this is that actually 90% of all labor immigration programs that I've looked at in 55 are temporary migration programs. Okay, so this whole, there's a whole literature about the demise of temporary migration work and the return of the guest worker. Well, in you know, fact is, there's very few permanent migration programs. By permanent migration program, I mean a program that grants permanent residents on arrival. So mostly the name of the game, in a way, is temporary migration, even among programs that attract only high-skilled workers, the majority grant temporary residents, temporary status on, on arrival. This just basically tells you, this gives you the different openness indicators. Uh, so zero means that it's, it's, it's used heavily, very restricted. And one out here means that you know, there's no restriction. So basically this means that demand-side restrictions, so requirement of a job offer, labor market test, are much more heavily used than supply-side restrictions. Again, that's not surprising. Supply-side restrictions, restrictions on characteristics of workers are really mostly uh, prevalent in points-based systems in traditional settlement countries. Most, most countries regulate labor immigration through a combination of quotas, requirement of job offer, labor market test, and things like that. And there's some variation across. Some restrictions are used as complements, job offers, and labor market tests. Um, High-income countries as a group are more open than medium-income countries. There's some interesting variation by, you can do it by a um, variety of capitalism and by different worlds of welfare states. So if you look at different uh, types of uh, uh, models of capitalism, uh, not surprisingly, you see that, for example, coordinated market economies use conditions of employment, which in red here, much more uh, frequently as a way of restricting employment. So by that I mean, uh, the way conditions of employment restrict immigration is you require employers to basically treat migrant workers equally, as the Swedes do. Okay, so in Sweden, migrants need to be paid collective degree wage um, and treated equally. And that's, of course, a, a restriction in terms of immigration. So I think you can tell him, you can do some more work, I think, in terms of how these things pan out by different varieties of capitalism and by different welfare states. The first point is there's strong evidence coming out, this openness, going from zero restricted up to one open, very strongly increases with skill level. So as you, as you move from low skill to higher skill programs, programs become much more open. It's much more prominent among higher income countries. So I think the first, first hypothesis, I think a strong confirmation of that. On rights, this tells you the types of rights that are restricted most frequently. Again, zero means very restricted, one means equality of rights. Now, again, not surprisingly, the rights that are most often restricted tend to be stand in migrants' right to stand for elections, right to vote, uh, and then you've got some economic and some social rights and residence rights. In red, you have permanent migration programs. In blue, you have temporary migration programs. Again, we know that permanent migration programs tend not to restrict rights very, very much. So there's a statistically significant difference for all of these rights between temporary migration. So it's the temporary migration programs that restrict rights. And uh, 
We've got free child's employment, very heavily restricted, uh, time limit on residence, access to citizenship, family reunion. So there's got significant variation. Now this was, when I, I did this by, by region, this was slightly reassuring, because it, 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 I think it does correspond to what we know. So this tells you the restrictions on rights by region, by type of rights. And uh, so the closer you are to the origin, the more restrictive you are. And what you find is that the most of all the regions I've looked at, the most restrictive are the GCC countries in the Middle East. And of course we know that is true. Um, so we've got, you know, the, 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 with regard to all dimensions of rights, the Gulf states are most restrictive, followed by Southeast Asia. We know in many Southeast Asian countries have very strict temporary migration programs followed by North America, Europe, and Latin America. What's interesting is that Latin America is, in a way, the most liberal in terms of rights. But like, remember that we're talking about rights on paper, not rights in practice. So I think there's also a question that, you know, for countries that, um, um, you know, countries that don't have very strong health systems, it's easier to grant the right to health than, say, in countries that have very extensive health systems or welfare states. So I think there's, there's a story to be told there. But this is, I found this reassuring because it roughly it meets kind of a common sense test. Now this confirms my second expectation that the rights, all kinds of rights, except political rights, increase as you move up the skill ladder. Right? So you move up toward more highly skilled immigration programs, you, you, you leave um, these um, programs F offer, offer more rights. This is not the case for political rights. Again, the story I have in mind is one of kind of it's a cost-benefit analysis in a way, and you would that, that kind of driver, you would expect that to apply much more to economic and social rights, family rights, family reunion rights than, than to political rights. You can do some regression else which finds that. Finally, relationship between rights and openness. So, so the story is, if you restrict the sample to high-income countries, to upper high-income countries, the only relationship you find are negative relationships, so trade-offs between openness and some, and some rights. Okay, so actually the trade-offs, you find a negative relationship between openness to many migrants and some specific rights. If you group them, you will see them, they most often arrive, um, occur economic rights and social rights. Economic rights is actually the right to pre employment that's most heavily involved. So, I mean, that's more detailed analysis, but basically, I think there's, there's evidence, credible evidence, that it's, you know, these things are real. That, yes, countries are more open to skill, they grant skill more rights, and there's this tension between openness and some, some specific rights. Um, there's a couple of chapters that try to get to the policy rationales in some of these countries, because, you know, just because you have a theory and then you have empirical analysis, doesn't, just because empirical analysis um, confirms, confirms the expectation doesn't necessarily mean that the theory is right. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that the reason that things are as they are is because countries think in this very rational way about policy. So I've got two chapters about how countries actually think. And I think there's very strong evidence, again, that in most countries, it's very much cost-benefit considerations very much drive uh, questions about restrictions, restrictions of rights. I mean, there's some, there's some exceptions to this, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, I'll just mention a few examples, a few case studies. In the mid-1990s in the U.S., uh, a lot of concern about this, the cost of low-skilled migration, uh, the welfare costs of low-skilled migration. Uh, President Clinton um, uh, set up the uh, Immigration Reform Commission, which recommended um, reducing immigration but maintaining migrants' access to welfare state. 
Congress turned around and did the opposite, cut access to the welfare state and maintained immigration high. So this was the grand bargain in a way. You reduce rights, you reduce social rights, you keep immigration high. So it was the slogan was immigration, yes, welfare, no. The accession of the East European countries and um, the policies in Ireland and the UK was very much, yes, we, we're open, but the way we are able to open up is to reduce or to make it harder again to access social rights. And we can see that debate being compete, uh, repeated now as we talk about Romanians and Bulgarians. Right, but there's, there's many other examples, I think, where, where you can have very clear case studies of this tension. Um, very briefly, I'll conclude in five minutes. I mean, what I'm, I've talked about labor immigration policies, of course, made in receiving countries, but obviously impacts on migrants and sending countries. In migrants and sending countries, their behavior can undermine or sustain or encourage particular policy developments in receiving countries. So in a way, the point I'm trying to make in the paper is that, in the research is that, you know, the interests of migrants are, of course, multidimensional and include rights, they include health outcomes, they include you know, economic outcomes, many different things. And fact is that you currently observe migrants choosing to, many migrants choosing to go to places that operate uh, very severe rights restrictions. Middle East, again, is, is, is a good example. So currently, many workers are choosing to go to places that significantly restrict their rights. Well, this is not surprising because rights, of course, are not the only outcome. That, we, that people are concerned about. I mean, they, they improve their wages significantly, so trade-offs are being, being made. Now, sending countries, if you look at the emigration policies of the major sending countries, in almost all countries, you'll see dual objectives. One is send more migrant workers abroad. Second one, protection. And these are often in conflict. So if you look, again, there are many empirical examples. Look at the Asian countries, troubles, uh, Indonesia, Philippines, relationships with the Gulf states in terms of protection. Most countries are very reluctant to insist on equal rights or even on greater protection of rights for fear of losing access to this market. If you look at the posted workers directive and the, within the European Union, um, you know, the, you know, so if a worker is posted, say from from a, from Hungary to to Sweden, what what um, wages and employment standards should apply? Is it you know Hungarian or, or Swedish ones? Of course, the, the can. East European countries very strongly argue against equal rights of Swedish standards because they consider that a protectionist measure. It takes away their ability to, to exercise a comparative advantage. So, anyway, the argument of Swedish trade unions that there should be equality of rights is perceived as a protectionist argument. It restricts immigration. Same story under the Chats Mode 4 discussions within the World Trade Organization, where you know the major receiving countries are saying, well, we'll engage in these negotiations, we accept IT workers from India if we can have wage wage uh, parity, wage parity argument. We accept your workers, but only if they're paid the same as our British workers. Well, India has turned around and said, well, you know, that defeats the whole purpose of engaging in this because we want to, you know, our comparative advantage is, is in cheaper labor. So, you know, there's a very explicit argument that, you know, against kind of equality of treatment because it restricts. Um, Migration. So, to conclude, I mean, there's again a chapter on ethics, but so the question is if you accept that there's this tension between more migration and more rights, what should you do about it? And as always, I mean, I think there's many different ways in which you could, could evaluate that. I'm taking quite a pragmatic approach. I'm operating within a kind of second best and dirty hands kind of world. So, in, in kind of ideal theory, if you take a cosmopolitan approach, you would say that both things are good things. You want both, right? 
You want more migration and you want more acts because they're both, from a global justice point of view, you, know, you want both. In fact, you can't have both, so you're kind of second-based. And so I'm kind of advocating a policy that, ex that very strongly protects civil and political rights but allows some of these restrictions, that specifically allows some of these restrictions in order to encourage more movement. And, I mean, crudely put, my main concern is that if you didn't do that, if you insisted, what's the most likely alternative to not doing that is that people are excluded. Okay? So, I, th I think people who argue against guest worker programs and temporary migration without strict rights need to argue why it's better for people not to be admitted at all than being admitted as guest workers under some rights restrictions. So, what I also argue in a way is that if you look at... I, if you look at, if you return to the convention and to some human rights approaches, I think there's a danger in some of the human rights approaches of, of a blind spot, in the sense that, I mean, this is to simplify, but most human rights-based approaches are concerned about protecting the rights of existing migrants. But they're not concerned about the opportunities to migrate of all the workers who want to migrate when you're trying to access labor markets to high-income countries. So in a way, they're, they're, they're doing good in sense in one area, protection, but are potentially harming the immigration opportunities, the ability to migrate of all these workers who still want to go. So I think, I think there's, there's a strong case for trying to encourage uh, UN agencies and others to, to, to engage with the trade-off. So far, they have not done so. Uh, been very hostile to it, with the potential exception of UNDP. Not surprising, because UNDP is concerned with development. So the way the imperative to have more migration is much stronger there than in some of the other organizations. So anyway, the, the policy conclusion at the international level would be that I think there's a case to be had for thinking about core rights more strongly. So, you know, the conventions are very demanding and uh, of states, I think, a very long list of rights um, and there's trade-offs with admission. So I think there's a case to, to be made for thinking about, well, you know, what are the most important rights that need to, need to be protected under any program? And we're not going to tolerate any trade-offs uh, involving these rights. And um, um, there is a precedent for this. Uh, the International Labour Organization, of course, in the late 1990s, um, uh, started talking about core labour standards, where they identified a few specific rights um, that they began to advocate and uh, much more strongly. And this was partly in response to a perceived uh, downward trend in the willingness of different nation states to sign up to this convention. So I think, you know, after 25 years of, of UN convention, I think it's hard to argue that the, of the Migrant Worker Convention has been particularly effective at protecting migrants. I argue that it could actually do harm by making migration more, more, more difficult if you kind of expect all these countries to grant these rights. In a way, I make an argument to bring some of the politics back in and to, to engage with, uh, with the tension in practice. Now, just repeat again, I've said it I think, a few times, but the book makes kind of two contributions. One is just to say there is this tension, and I think we need to talk about it. And separately, there's a normative argument about how I think this should be dealt with. Uh, now, it's per obviously, what I'm hoping is that people will... Well, it's perfectly possible that people disagree with my normative argument without rejecting the rest of the book, which is that there is this tension. And I think not talking about it at all, um, uh, denying its existence, is not, is not helpful. So I hope that some of this will generate some, some debate.